0: Hello and welcome to Navara FM brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM London's most spectacularly original of radio stations a gem of the redoubtably weird in an increasingly bland and homogenized radio landscape the stone in the shoe of a self-congratulatory London cultural industry I am James Butler how long did it take between you getting up this morning and checking your social media? Do you sleep with a phone under your pillow? Is a screen nearly the first thing you see in the morning and the last thing you see before you sleep at night, bathed in its lambent, watchful blue glow? I think for many of us, uh, the answers to these questions are disquieting, but they do not reduce the frequency or intensity of our engagement with social media, with digital platforms, or with uh, technology and communication. One might wonder, how could it be otherwise? Doesn't everything happen there now anyway? And there have been a number of works recently telling us as if we didn't know that all of this is actually pretty bad for us, but really do they scratch the surface of what's going on underneath it all, really do they want to dwell in the complex and often ambiguous effects of these new technologies or our ambivalence about them, preferring instead hoary nostalgia or the sackcloth and ashes of liberal whinging. Uh, Richard Seymour's new book, The Twittering Machine, is not like that and is instead a subtly articulated and deft exploration of some of these problems. I'm very pleased he's joining me again in the studio today to discuss them. Richard, welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, Brexit continues its twists and turns and notifications will i'm sure be pinging to people's phones all day and many listeners will be glued to their social media feeds trying to divine the minute changes in strategy emanating from number 10 as the day goes on but we won't primarily be talking about that today partly because it is useful i think sometimes to talk about other things and i'm sure it will come up maybe a bit when we talk about the politics or social media um and how these technologies have played in to the way in which we do politics these days. But if you want more of a Brexit fix, zoom on over to the Navara Media YouTube channel where live tonight, our own Michael Walker will be talking about Brexit, about Johnson's New Deal, and what happens next with Tom Kibasi of the IPPR. And of course, we will, I'm sure, be hot on the issue as it continues over the coming few days. I should say the Twittering machine uh, is not about Twitter per se. It draws its title from Paul Clay painting. The title is really a synecdoche for uh multiple platform social technologies and the kinds of effect they have on the people who use them. Um, I'm gonna dive into the book and I think you know the book begins with I I guess, you know, in some ways a sort of three-sided um concern. It recognizes that this new technology has come about um, and that it's changed something in the way that we write, and the way that we communicate, and it identifies yeah. a compulsion which seems to have arisen because of it. And that there are now huge fractions of capital uh, invested in those techniques of compulsion. Yeah. Um, uh, and sort of two other things that are playing alongside that, I think that, that you know, open the book. The, se- the second side of this is that it opens or it marks a kind of change in dispensation, right? A shift from print capitalism to screen capitalism. Uh, And that this shift marks, I think, more than just a change in the speed of circulation of information, um, but perhaps arising because of that, or or as part of that, a shift in the kind of politics and the kind of selfhood that results. And the third, I think, is identifying something that, 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 that perhaps is obvious in some ways, but goes, I think, sometimes unstated, uh, and I was glad to see it you know, right there and explicit at the start of the book, uh, that, that writing uh, is intimately bound up with the formation of human societies the way human selfhood is mm. formed. Uh, and that's the, so, so that it's not just a way of recording thoughts, a kind of... A, a transparent medium you know which sets down something that 's going on out there, like you know you, you know taking a photograph of a street might sure. do. Um, but 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 works as a you know a sort of magic mirror that kind of shapes the thing that it purportedly records um, so so is that, how, how did you come to that concern um, well there 's a couple of things i mean the
1: Part of the stimulus for the book um, was uh, the essay that I wrote for the LRB about trolling and that was in, in part about my own dramas on social media and it was in part about a general sort of concern about the prevalence of sadism and sh- sheer nastiness and the excitement around moments of uh, sadistic pylon. Now, we're all used to sort of um, shorthands for describing this now. You know, we would know about the pylon. Um, and there are various other terms I can't use here because of uh, regulations, but you know, you know the kind <laughs> of thing that I'm talking about. Um, so um, I kind of wanted to figure out what was going on there and whether... Is this something that was just always there? um is this something that's new um the moral panic literature would have you believe that everything that happened prior to say 2011 when smartphone ownership became ubiquitous in europe and north america um that uh, it was basically you know it wasn't okay but it was better much better and there's some sense in which that's true and some senses in which that's false um But, I mean, in terms of the effects of um, the changing economy of writing, um, and really I think we need to start thinking about it in terms of an ecology as well. Um, Prior to the internet, certainly, the majority of writing was, um, most people experienced uh, literacy as readers. And as far as we did any writing, you know, we might write in our diary, we might send letters, letters to the editor, etc., etc. But we were not active participants in a writing economy in that sense. Um, We were passive recipients of a one-way stream of ideological meaning. Um, And that is definitely no longer true. Uh, The effects of that are complicated. On the one hand, of course, I'm old enough to remember when you would go to a protest, and um, you would wonder, is BBC even going to cover this, you know? uh, Will they give us a shot of a lonely placard uh, hanging off the end of a wall or something, and then say, not many people turned up, you know, that kind of thing. That was the worry. Nobody really worries about that now because if you have a protest and you want to get it, uh, get it across, it's going to be covered. Mm. Um, and it might even go viral regardless of whether the media cover it. Um, so there is that effect. But on the other hand, of course, it's work. I mean, we are writing more now than ever before in human history. Um, it never used to be the case that most people ubiquitously would be writing on the tube, uh, in lunch breaks, um, uh, during dinners. You know, um, and some people, according to surveys, during sex. Um, you know, it, it's 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 all over the place, um, and it's colonizing our free time, and. I would like to believe, I mean, there's a bit of a joke in the book that, you know, we are all scripturient. We're all d- possessed by this violent desire to write. Um, I'd love to believe that was true of everybody. You know, as a writer, that's my fantasy. <laughs> that everybody wants to be a writer. But actually, I think that there's something else going on. There's forms of tacit and subtle coercion. And then, of course, there's the problem of addiction. Um, and there are ways in which the whole... Architecture of society is being rewritten, sorry, rewritten around uh, this system of writing, um, so that you can't afford to pass up the advantages of doing mm-hmm. so, no matter the ill effects it has on you.
0: I, I, I'm curious about this, this because you, you talk about this transition from print capitalism to screen capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm aware of, um, you know, my, I, I know the term as something used by uh, T.J. Clark when he's reading benedict Anderson, he's thinking about you know the, the way in which kind of print um, was used as a, as a means of circulation for uh, a sort of nineteenth century proto nationalism um, or, or indeed nationalisms or but also sort of the circulation of kind of left politics uh, as well he's very interested in, in the way in this in which print actually um, takes ideas. Um, out of Europe and actually is part of a kind of uh, uh, struggle in, in places where uh, Western leftists don't often see it. So there's a sense of there being kind of a global flow of information. Mm. Um, and, and sort of Clark is saying things like, you know, well, actually, you know, the, the, the rise of screen capitalism actually changes fundamentally the way in which people think um, about yeah. about you know what politics is and what it does and, and, and what it's for, um, so I just I just want to kind of zero in on that, that question a bit. It's like it, it, what distinguishes the the regime of screen capitalism from the kind of communicative te- technologies that went before it? You have you have you, you've mentioned the the compulsion to write, right? Is 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 that the only thing? I mean, there's something here also about kind of the speed of circulation in the sense, um, perhaps a, 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 of dialogue of consumption.
1: Um, There's a number of things, I think in psychoanalytic terms you could talk about um, the sort of narcissistic libido, uh, by which I mean, you know, writing is always a form of sublimated narcissism. You're always uh, in a way writing about yourself Mm -hmm. no matter what you're doing. Um, And the question is how successfully you mediate that between, uh, you know, between that and the desires of your audience and so on. but with uh, these um with the social industry as i've called it um it has a different basis which is that you have Writing organized around an ecology of micro-celebrity. Celebrities, um, you know, have always been sort of complexly arranged in a kind of uh, hierarchical ecology. You know, used to have everything from the the glowing star on the silver screen to um, uh, the, 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 the vox pop. Or the have-a-go hero or something like that. You know, you'd be a celebrity for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's just taken um, the idea of celebrity and uh, given it this particular iteration. I mean, just to put this concretely, if you have a social media account, you have a public relations image. Just by dint of having that, you choose whether you're going to have a photo, what kind of name you're going to have. Um, if you um, use that account, you have a social, you have a public relations strategy because you have to decide, am I going to tweet this? Um, Now, most of us are very bad at public relations, as it happens. We are not corporate PR departments. Um, And if we engage with the industry as it uh, invites us to, um, you know, like as if we're meeting friends um, and as if we're all having, you know, uh, this open sort of uh, dialogue, um, you know, and uh, then we'll tend to get into um uh, in allowing it to engage our affects you know if you're a professional social media person, you don't do that, so um most of us have a sort of a celebrity. Um, uh, uh, account, as it were, um, and we 're bidding for uh, a certain share of attention in an economy where attention is subject to scarcity and where it can be monetized and you know the, these um, they 've come up with various ways, metrics of measuring how successful you are at getting attention, your likes, your retweets, your shares, all of that stuff, uh, watch time on YouTube, and so on, um, so that uh, Everybody can have at least a pittance of celebrity. Um, and the question there is I mean, there, there are many questions that that opens up. Uh, but the first question is what's so addictive, what's so alluring about celebrity? And the second question is given um, that. Most of the research, not all of it, but most of the research, suggests that exposure to and engagement with these platforms will tend to correlate to increased depression, increased self-harm, and increased suicidal behavior. Um, What is so... Unutterably depressing and bleak about celebrity, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of research on celebrities, and, uh, you know, which suggests that they, for example, commit suicide at rates far greater than the rest of the population. Um, and there, it, it's almost as if, you know, you, you often get celebrity breakdowns, celebrity benders. It's almost as if what the celebrity is, it's not you as a person, as it were. Um, it's not the subject per se. It's the image. It's an icon. So, you've created an icon of, of, of yourself that you have to constantly fortify and you have to labor to produce every single day, you know, during toilet breaks and tube journeys. This is what we're doing. Wh- whatever our sincere political intentions and so on, um, you and I are both on these platforms. Yep. This is what we're doing. Okay, so that's <laughs> just to be clear. But, um, and uh, so the point is that um, we are creating an icon. But the thing about it is, is. Um, as uh narcissist discovered the image doesn 't love you back <laughs> um, and it can actually you know in a way if, the more that you feed that image, the more that you loathe it, mm. the more it tyrannizes you there's a way of thinking about this um uh, which is that um if you if you go on Instagram, for example. And you engage in a sort of selfie spiral. Um, And many of us have been there. I certainly have. But one of the ways of doing that is you use filters a lot, lots and lots of filters. And use it to flatten out um, floors and smudges and, uh, like, Um, red marks on your skin, wrinkles, things like that. Um, And maybe use those cutesy Snapchat filters to give yourself little doggy ears (laughs) and a dog nose and whatever else to make yourself look cute and so on. Okay, so you can create a string of images of yourself in various different formats. They all look more or less the same. And interestingly, um, as one writer put it, uh, they all look as if um, they're post-mortem. They look as if you know, you're looking at an image of somebody who died Mm -hmm. Um, uh, There's something about the the frozen sort of suspended animation that's going on there. Well You can do that and you might love that image But all the more you're gonna hit yourself and You're Mm -hmm. gonna hit all the flaws that you have you're gonna have an exaggerated attention to them because you spend so much time smudging them out Mm -hmm. Um, so It's uh, in a way there's uh, suicide, is one response to that. Another a response might be what you might call auto iconoclasm. A mm-hmm. Senna O'Neill um, Instagram model I talk about in the book. I thought did an interesting thing there where she essentially uh, decided I'm going to smash the image I'm going to smash the idol Um, and she went under all of her very glamorous beautiful shots of herself in various clothes and various sort of glam places and said do you know what this took ages to do it was exhausting I was up at 5am you know all of the horrible aspects of it um, so that it doesn't really feel glam anymore it just feels like work Mm -hmm. and this is and for her this was liberation it helped her get away from that um, libidinal economy yeah, of yeah, celebrity yeah. and um, now we, we we can't all take that same route no but if we don't think about that kind of auto iconoclasm the other route to auto iconoclasm uh, auto iconoclasm is the self-destructive celebrity bender mm-hmm. where you get in a furious ride with your fans we've seen actual so-called celebrities do this all the time but this is what we're doing mm-hmm. you know we have followers and then you know we sort of say something stupid or you know obnoxious or or, or even something just mildly ambiguous so, yeah. i mean as contrapoints is discovered you don't even have to say anything particularly
0: bad <laughs> yeah i mean it's it, it's intriguing isn't it i mean there's so many things to kind of pick up here one is like that 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 question of the image, right, and the relationship between image and text, because it, I, I think in some ways, like the, the the argument in the book, which I think is, is actually pretty convincing, says that we should think of these kind of, uh, you know, collectively, that there isn't actually the sharp distinction between writing mm-hmm. uh, and the production of images. Uh, and, that, and that they might operate in different ways, but they they, they undergo the same kind of logic yeah. in the social industry. Um, and I, you know, in, in, in some ways, this, this thing is easier to think about in terms of the image than it is about writing. I don't think people are using to thinking about you know writing and, and writing in public uh, it, it, in this way it's easier to think about partly because the techniques we use with images are are very explicit in terms of the way in which we kind of correct them or filter them or uh, you know mm. uh, uh, saturate them or, or desaturate you know whatever yeah um, uh, but 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 you know I mean it, it, I I wonder you know just to, to kind of pick up on the, on on that question uh, of the image like so 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 the flip you know the, the thing that 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 is also going on here, and, and that you know you're alluding to, is that is that so there is this kind of long term, you know, this this long existing story about the social industry, about these kind of you know, technologies, and it was there really from the kind of you know early MySpace, really, even you know this kind of you, know, you get to connect with people and maybe people you don't know, uh, and that they're you know they're kind of early you know optimism about something like twitter for instance is you know this is a a wide open public forum in which debate can take place in which you can communicate with far-flung people you know there are these ideas yeah. and perspectives you've never encountered or wouldn't encounter before or maybe you can even build political movements in conditions in which yeah. it would be otherwise disadvantageous and yet you know and one of the things that's quite compelling about the book is the way in which you outline the way in which the kind of you know, reward mechanisms of these platforms were actually happened upon, you know, by accident. And there's a kind of, you know, series of, of refinements to them and how they operate. Mm. Um, but you say that that we're not, Interacting with them, i.e. other people, but with the machine, uh, and I think I, you know, I think that could you expand on that because it's it's quite a, a compelling uh, counter argument to this sort of optimism. Yeah, although I would say that optimism is not completely uh, groundless, but I'll come back to
1: that. But. Um there's a lot of actually um, quite interesting research on how humans interact with um, uh, machines. Um, there's a famous experiment going back to the 70s by Joseph Weizenbaum uh, with a computer called ELIZA, which um, uh, was like your uh, Rogerian therapist. You know, would just it would just basically keep asking you questions uh, and ask you to expand upon what you've just said, and people. Uh, you know after a while, would find themselves interacting with this computer, knowing it was a computer, knowing it was a program as if it was a real person. They would form a transference relationship with it, as they would say in psychoanalysis and I think that um actually you know the transference um, which is just a relationship of love um, is um the fundamental social relation in a way, and when you start doing that with your um iPads and phones, which we all do. Um, I mean, you, you've seen people do this, and it's it's supposed to be funny. You know, like, you start shouting at your computer, like, why the hell are you freezing up now? Um, uh, you know, like, uh, my mouse won't work, and I'm smashing mm-hmm. it against the, you know. Um, it, it, but you do develop a kind of effective relationship and a series of bonds with it, and if somebody took it away, that would be awful. Mm. Um And it would actually uh, rip a big hole in your life. This is where addiction comes in because addiction is all about staying close to the object, knowing exactly where it is, how to get to it, um, and making sure, you know, your supply is there. It's it's always stocked up so that, you know, you have to charge up your phone and make sure you've got plenty of 4G and all the rest of it. Um, So, um, yeah, the, the, um, the... incentive to um, be on there. You mentioned the reward systems and so on. The reward systems um, certainly give you um, a mediated form of somebody, a mediated and quantified form of somebody else's response. And the thing about it is, is um, you can think of this in a sort of anthropomorphic sort of mythologizing form as, oh, that's that's affection, you know. Somebody gives me a like, that's affection, that's love. Well, actually, we know that these are polysemic. Mm. Um, A like can mean lots of different things. It just can mean a little nudge, or it can mean I really fancy you, but I'm too shy to say. Or any number of things, you know. Um, And um, so it doesn't really, in itself, the like doesn't tell you anything, but it is just... um, for the uh, for the industry, the social industry, a way to uh, sort of convert these affects, which are unruly, into something that is abstract and measurable and therefore monetizable. So, um, in a sense, you become hooked not on whatever these. Uh, Cookies mean, you know, these likes and shares and all the rest of it. Um, you become hooked on the cookies themselves, mm-hmm. and you, you know how it is. I mean, research shows this. You you click into your phone in the morning, uh, uh, like so many people do. That first thing before they talk to their partner, before they eat breakfast, look at their phone, check your notifications. That um, big red notification. You go on your Facebook. It's like big red number, and if it's not big enough, it's kind of it kind of ruins your day. <laughs> it makes you feel worse not in a big way just in a subtle way that means I I really have to put out more content that will get more likes and more engagement, you know. I mean, not that people think systematically in that way, but that's kind of the... It it just works over the long range. That's the incentive. So um, your incentive is to write to the machine, confess your secrets to it, um, allow it to take a copy Mm -hmm. for its own Mm -hmm. purposes in its own idiom, um, and then, of course, pass on a a version of your message to somebody else. Um, And the thing about it is, crucially... You don't necessarily know who will the message will be passed on to Unless you're writing in an actual messenger, Mm -hmm, app, mm -hmm. which then it becomes more complicated, but if you're writing um, uh, For your Twitter timeline for your Facebook feed you have no idea who Facebook will allow to see that who Twitter will allow to see that They have obviously proprietary algorithms that decide how they're going to assign this content and it will be based on what they've uh, decided Gets that person, goes that person into reacting. So the you know like uh, we all do this thing uh, on Twitter, for example. Somebody writes something awful, and we think I've got to I've got to respond to that. I've got to you know put that person down. I've got to like give them a
0: witty, you know, response. Yeah, I did it just this (laughs) morning.
1: (laughs) But we all do. Or, uh, well, in my case, the temptation is uh, call somebody an idiot or something. But, uh, I mean, which is, again, it's uh, like you would never do this in real life. You would extend somebody basic respect. So it's interesting how that all disappears on on these uh, platforms. Anyway, um, but we all do that. But the thing about it is that for the algorithms, that just registers as you really like that content. Mm, mm, mm. And it's interesting, that's, that sort of feeds into the political part of this just a little bit, because um, it's common for the social industry bosses to say... These people don't really know what they want. They will often say we don't want that picture and then We'll do a better test and it turns out they love it. Mm. And the reason they're saying it is because it, it increases engagement yeah. Yeah. Um, So they really are Skeptical uh, in a profound way about the ability of people to have an autonomous will mm. um, It's this is goes goes back to the sort of f- Unconscious sort of initially unconscious behaviorist input into how they think about this. Um, I think just to sort of wrap up the point about likes and rewards and so on. um, You mentioned how in the book it's described that they sort of stumbled upon it. Retroactively, they then justified this um, and made it seem like that. Oh, we did this because it was a theory. Like Mm -hmm. you know, like even the guilty social media boss. Oh yeah, we did that because we knew that that's this would make people. You know, it would exploit a a psychological weakness. Like they have any idea about Mm -hmm. psychological (laughs) weaknesses? These people are idiots beyond their narrow field. They have no idea what they're talking about. But um, the theory based upon uh, dopamine highs, um, which is their theory of addiction, was sort of. Um, wheeled out in order to, um, provide a post-hoc rationale for a business model that just happened to work. Uh, in other words, um, you know, in the Marxist idiom, it um, theorised class praxis. And um, then you st- suddenly started getting all these business books about how to get your audience hooked,
0: yeah, how yeah, to make yeah. your
1: customers come back for more.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, the way in which these th- these things I are. Mean, just thinking about this stuff, you know, um, you know, I was thinking about it last night, I was sort of scrolling through my Twitter timeline. like, yeah, and it struck me as it has struck me you know many times the way in which i um you know these things operate to drive people to the the you know on um, you know the extremes of their lexicon, right? You know something is never merely quite interesting. It's like this is you know this is the yeah. great take, or this is like an abominable, horrifying <laughs> sign of moral evil that you this, think this or, all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is this kind of like very, very you know this drive towards kind of intensity, and mm-hmm. it's but it's an intensity which is located. You know, very much in the present moment, right? Uh, and and you know, you know, the, reading the book, I, I I found myself thinking of kind of three, you know, uh, thinkers about this stuff. And you know, one was obviously and who has a presence in the book, um, you know, is De Boer, mm-hmm. um, you know, who who obviously writes the Society of the Spectacle. But I was thinking about like some of the later stuff in the notes to the Society of the Spectacle. Where he's kind of very concerned about the way in which uh, you know the, the you know the technology of the image sort of lit liquidates any sense of the past, right? So it drives people yes. to live, you know, very, very much in, in 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 the present. And he's worried about this, right? Because he he thinks, you know, well, the way in which resistance. Uh, Operates is by kind of a refusal, you know, the capacity to be not completely sublimated within, um, you know, the, the 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 image life, right? Yeah. So that you have these kind of, uh, you know, uh, this resistance to any kind of single framing, right? And and that actually you might become kind of completely tractable to power were you to to, to lose that. Um, you know and so, and so uh, you know always debord is, is quite interesting thinking about this stuff there's kind of some very kind of ham-fisted applications of uh, 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 of his ideas um, which circulate around social media about like you know you by using social media you're inside the spectacle and you can't do you know the, actually Debord is kind of subtler than that he's thinking about the way in which like, you know you, you know, the, 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 these images well I mean the other thing he says is, is that, that this affects the, the, the masters as well right like yes. that you can't you know the idea that, that, that it's a technology that operates, you know, in one direction downwards is is, is simply incorrect. I mean, you know, a couple of, you know, the other people I was thinking about were were, um, Adorno, obviously, you know, is the person that one thinks about all the time in terms of theories of of mass communication and and culture industry. I was thinking in particular about, you know, the way in which he's very concerned about technologies that indeed like radio, indeed, which we're sitting on right now, which he kind of, you know, thinks is, you know, uh, tends towards fascism as most things do, For for Teddy, Um, but but you know he he's very concerned about the way in which you know you you have a a, something broadcasting unidirectionally, right? Yes. And so initially you would think, okay, well that's clearly not the case with these technologies, right? That they um, you know that they allow a a plurality of voices, Um, but at the same time, and as you go on to develop, there there do seem to be these kind of um, you know these these squalls and storms of kind of collective. Uh, You know, outrage very often is is what passion, you know, what drives them, but, but you know, it can seem, certainly if you're on the receiving end of it, which I'm sure we both have been, that the the, the internet is speaking with one voice and it's telling you that you're wrong uh, and you're also evil, possibly. Yeah. Uh, and then you know that led me to think about um, René Girard um who's you know, yes. not not necessarily a thinker of the left but um no. a, a kind of you know very acute thinker about desire and the way in which desire is shaped actually not originally and spontaneously just from somewhere um you know the the the, the inaccessible regions of of somewhere behind selfhood but is actually formed mimetically, right? That, that the way in which our desires are shaped um, are are both in concert with and actually responding to, um, you know, d- desire in the other. So, do you, yes. do you, so, so how, do, is that a, a reasonable read of how these things come about?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, just to say, um, it it is deliberately in tribute to Adorno that I described this as the the social industry. Mm -hmm. It's a riff on the culture industry. Um, Obviously Adorno can be accused of overstating the homogeneity and programmed production line conformity of Hollywood culture. But the basic point that he's getting across that, you know, subordinating culture to the law of the commodity will tend to result in um, a a set of reified good guys and bad guys, um, conservative habits of thought reiterated over and over and over again. I mean, looking at Hollywood, that's not really that wrong. Mm. But the social industry, uh, as you say, it's different because it requires participation. Um, And in a way, it's not one way, except that the locus um, of dominance has shifted. So the social industry bosses are not pursuing an ideological agenda. They are not like the Cold War print giants, Axel Springer Rupert Murdoch, um, pursuing their sort of ideological uh, banners. Um, they certainly have a politics, but as we've seen with Zuckerberg uh, courting the Republicans, that could be quite a you know a flexible politics. Um, But they are, um, as they like to put it, content agnostic, right? Now, content agnosticism was there with, um, to some extent, with the old print media, um, but it was mediated and complicated. Um, It was there in as much as they were advertising vehicles and advertisers were the major vendors, and... um, Notwithstanding the virtues of the Chomsky-Herman propaganda model, I don't think baptizers really care about content fundamentally. They care about the audience. And that may have filtering effects, but they're not that bothered about the content. Um, So, that's one thing. But, of course, uh, you've got the proprietors with their agendas. And then beyond that, you've got um the professional ideology of journalists like they've got some sense of what a newspaper is what it must what sort of materials it must be made up of how you go about reporting stories facebook twitter all of these platforms are exceptionally efficient media organizations. Indeed, they're pure media. They're nothing but media. Precisely because they don't care about content. And they just distribute it. They break up the content. They break up the format of the newspaper, of the t- television news hour or whatever, and they just give you little snippets mm. and they just redistribute it uh, for maximum attention and maximum profitability. Um, so they're, um, in a way, much better. I'm sorry, I've forgotten where I started at this point and where I was supposed to be going, but does that <laughs> we were, we
0: were, we are we heading in a sort of Girardian, mimetic desire direction just oh, yeah. the way in which like because it does seem to me sort of curious that the or, or or the thing that i i was I, I was thinking about and it's the thing that i sort of return to when thinking about you know these technologies but 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 in some ways it's a, a more fundamental question about the way in which um you know, people on the left through the course of the 20th century or the late 20th century sort of think about desire, right? Which is, is there is this kind of you know uh, idea that crops up again and again that actually the, the the problem the problem is that somehow desire, which is uncomplicatedly good, yeah, um, is blocked somehow. Yeah right and that actually if we could just remove what was blocking it we'd be in some sort of you know utopia of vitalist free expression yeah. you know sexually politically you know etc 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 and and it does does just seem to me the thing one of the things that social media <laughs> demonstrates very very clearly and these technologies the social industry demonstrates very very clearly is that, that that's that's the, the problem isn't that something gets in the way right that mm-hmm. actually that there is a much more complex traffic that goes on about how Desire is formed, including around you know those repressions themselves, right? The idea yeah. that that simply like lifting blockages would somehow result in something you know positive yeah. is it seems to me like increasingly fatuous. Uh, and so, so, so to think about then, you know, the way in which, you know, if, and I'm not talking just on the level of kind of sexual desire here, right? Was, you know, yes. there, are, there are obvious things, you know, and there, there are very powerful social technologies. You think about the, you know, among gay men, the kind of chemsex stuff and the way in which that operates, where you have these technological part reward pathways, intimately bound up with drugs and sex themselves, both very very powerful mm. um, motive forces. Yeah, you can see that, but it, it, it operates, it seems to me, on on a political level as well, right? The, the, the way in which, you know, the, the, the uh, you know the the, the you, know, <clears throat> you know these technologies you know produce uh, you know kind of political positions and the way in which political positions are taken up uh, a, yeah. and, and and absorbed and shaped by these 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 technologies. I mean, in terms of desire, I mean, well, first
1: of all, as you say, I mean, removing an obstacle does nothing, uh, in part because. You know, the obstacle is often the condition of the desire, Um, but also in part because um, desire, I mean, Lacan famously said desire, full stop, is desire of the other, Um, which means that you sort of are always desiring for somebody else. Um, and quite often it's you know you get this in everyday life um, you you listen to someone else r- enthuse about a book or rave about a film and you think Jesus I have to read this I mm. want to know about this and um, this is just how desire ordinarily works there is no Alfred Bowen's very good about this in his book on the PlayStation dream world there is no authentic desire um, there's no like fundamental desire and this is why the late lacan goes on to talk about um a politics of the real um of of drive and jouissance instead um but yeah um so in terms of um how do we how do we recognize this how do we work with this um obviously this isn't all bad for the left Because, you know, Corbynism has its hive minds, you know, and they're very transient um, and uh, fragile. Um, but they have been used at crucial moments to create momentum and speed um, and you know uh, collective enthusiasm um, uh, you know which has made a political difference and in the future um, the politicians who are you know going to succeed are going to be the ones who know how to mobilize Mm. that best I do tend to think um, for various reasons that this will favor a reaction much more than the left. Um, and that's, you know, the Brexit party. Mm. Um, there's interesting uh, research uh, by Jen Schrady, um, who's an American sociologist based in North Carolina, uh, looking at digital campaigning and basically looking at, uh, particularly focusing on Tea Party campaigning and finding, you know, it's interesting that uh, far from this sort of structure supporting horizontalist campaigns, the groups that do best are actually very hierarchical, top-down, um, not particularly democratic, and generally speaking, well-funded, um, got good, rigorous organizations. And that's what you would expect. These are, after all, marketing platforms. Mm. Um, um, but I think a more sinister example, and I talk about this in the book, is um, uh, the Islamic State. Yeah. Which yeah. Um, Is an example. I mean, certainly you can't just reduce this to a story about social media, but you can't talk about it without social media either. And certainly the whole uh, recruitment mechanism depended upon their ability to game these systems. So. When they uh, are reaching out to people on the social industry, uh, they didn't do what Al-Qaeda did, which was, you know, to disseminate long uh, video sermons and detailed manuals and um, theological justifications, um, which is, you know, the the, the sort of old school, uh, long form way of recruiting people. They did short video clips from uh, like a first person shooter perspective, a bit like these Lone Wolf videos, Mm -hmm. incidentally. Um, They did memes. They did hashtag jacking. Um, They answered questions on ask.fm. They said in that wry tone, Put down the chicken wings and come to Jihad, bro. Mm-mm-mm. And they knew what they were doing. I mean, they they they, they were subtle. Um, they were wry, um, and they uh, affected that. The corporations know how to do this. Use this tone. This sort of personable, affable tone, which is like, we like you. We want you to come back. We miss you. Please, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, becoming eventually a bit needy. But the point is that um, they've re- uh, refined that tone very well, and on the basis of these techniques, they recruited tens of thousands of people from across the world. Um, and the crucial thing was um, uh, uh, the the their ability to get people, um, one of their memes was to ask people to go out and wave the ISIS black flag, video it, and then put it online Mm -hmm. all over the world. And that meme spread uh, uh, all over the world. Um, uh, Paul Gilroy would call that logo solidarity. A bit like, you know, the way you invest in the swastika Mm -hmm. or the St. George's Cross or something. There's a lot of that on alt-right media. Um, And so um, these sort of techniques were only available because of the social industry. Now, is that necessarily, you know, are those techniques necessarily right-wing? Are they necessarily reactionary? Well, there's a number of ways to think about this, but um, the security specialist, J.M. Berger, wrote an interesting essay about Twitter as a carrier wave for millennial contagion. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Now, this is a security specialist, so he's not left-wing or anything, but he did say some interesting things nonetheless. Um, citing research on apocalyptic and millenarian movements, of which ISIS was obviously one, um, he pointed out the temporal dimensions of of it. And this is interesting, when you talk about the temporality of the image, okay, there's a very particular kind of temporality on the social industry. So he was talking about um, classically apocalyptic movements, first of all, they lift people out of the normal flow of time. There seems to be a speeding up, one thing happening after another very quickly. Second of all, everyone else seems to be um, swept up in it um, crucially so and then third of all um, you are immersed in other words there's you know you're very intimately touched by it from all around you there's this social circle which um, uh, is constantly beaming at you this image this message that something fundamental is going to rupture there's going to be a revelation Um, that's talking about it at the most abstract possible level but there's a reason for that because if you think about that, that, what we call apocalyptic time, is the time of the social industry. Mm -hmm. Because the whole point is that its logic of aggregation is, first of all, to bunch people together who have, uh, for the moment, similar sentiments about something. You've got a stock market of sentiments, you bunch people together who share a similar kind of sentiment. Um, Second of all, it allows recruiters to reach you really intimately. It's not just that you have your pocket in your phone. Uh sorry, your phone in your pocket. Um it's rather that the the feed that you get is designed for you. It's both very massified and very individual. Um and also, you know, there there is a sense on the social industry that things do speed up. Mm, mm. Um and there's even if there's nothing really going on like that's not true of this world, but you know, if it was, imagine it was a slow news uh, yeah. day or whatever, there would be That's a series a of. S- I know. Um, <laughs> I sort of, it almost makes one nostalgic for 1997 <laughs> when almost nothing happened. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. Um, you would still have a series of pseudo events. Mm. Indeed, mm. you know this is what um, uh, Daniel Boorstein uh, sort of de- defined celebrity as the pseudo event, mm. stars of pseudo events, and that's given we've got a micro celebrity ecology. Mm. There's always going to be something happening, even if, as um, you know, to mention the the, the, the latest fracas with the uh, contrapoints again, even if it's something negative, mm. right? Mm. Um, uh. Uh, you know, and uh, here's the thing, and I think this is kind of interesting. You know, I talked a bit about um, sort of the, the the online vigilantism, but it's actually really, really hard sometimes to tell it apart from trolling. There's an example I talk about uh, in the book. Um, I think it's... Um, Stranger Things actor, Millie Bobby Brown. Mm. She had to quit Twitter after being uh, harassed for ages, months. The hashtag, take down Millie Bobby Brown. And it was basically a tweet, a Twitter user um, claiming that she had encountered Brown in an airport, asked for a photograph, and then Brown allegedly said, only if you remove the hijab, and then aggressively pulled it off her head and stamped on it. This never happened. Mm-hmm. Nothing like this ever happened. I mean this was all made up but um, and it was clearly a troll, but the thing about it is is it allowed for months of woke you know sadism mm-hmm. towards this person and actually weirdly uh, it sort of added new you know like legends do it added new dimensions like she 's actually a homophobe. This is somebody who is very clearly uh, associated with the LGBT mm-hmm. uh, sorry LGPC rights um, so Clearly, it had nothing to do with her, um, but you know the, the the point is that this sort of dialectic of trolls and witch hunters, mm-hmm. or as I prefer to say now vigilantes, mm. um, which is closer to the mark of where it is, so trolls and vigilantes they 're sort of part of the same spiral they 're not just part of the same spiral they 're often the same. Thing in the same moment. Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. I, I got a real sense actually of, of just for, for, from the book as kind of uh, of trolls <laughs> certainly as on some level, um, not all of them, but on some level, sort of disappointed moralists, right? I mean, there is definitely that element mm-hmm. to this, but also like I mean, you talk about you know the the the, the aspiration being to kind of domesticate the Furies with the, the rule of law, but it seems to me that there's also something that goes on here, which is which is absolutely to do with with you know the resurrection of a sort of more immediate and primitive form of justice, which is the 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 Charivari, the the kind of uh, you know uh, the the kind of collective uh, rough justice, yeah, um, which, which seems to me actually it's, you know it, it's one of the things when you go actually you know the the achievement of, of, of the domestication of the furies is not a bad thing, uh, you know the, the establishment of law yeah. uh, as a means of, of political redress not actually a bad thing at all. So so you know it's one of the things that 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 that, that you know, this, this social media sort of highlights to you actually is the kind of fragility of these achievements. Yes. And the fact that they are actually overlaid on, you know, these kind of quite convulsive and irrational. <clears throat> Aspects of human behaviour. Um, I, I guess just on on that question of sort of politics in in the, the age of the social industry, um, you know, oh, we get these things. You know, did Brexit or Trump happen because of social media? These these are not, you know, I think useful questions in in, in some ways. Um, you know, there's interesting questions there, but I don't think that they're useful, you know, to, to a very great extent. Um, but it does seem to me that that there is a question of like how, whether politics is 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 easy you know, it's harder to do, uh, you know, in an age of not only sort of you know, increased public statements. So this has been true through the Brexit stuff, right? Like, you know, it, you know immediately you have uh, politicians making statements on social media. So you know, the, the speed with which these these things are done in public is is much much greater and much much, you know, much more frenetic. And um, but it does. It's it's also you know, like, obviously you talk about sort of pizza gate and stuff like this. Is conspiracy theories that circulate yeah. around around this stuff, which I think is really important. But actually, it seemed to me the more important part of this was that the number of true things. That circulated about someone like Hillary Clinton, for instance, in her mm-hmm. presidential campaign. This this speech she gave about the need to have public and private positions, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, you uh, so, know. So, so there is. You know, is it harder to do politics the social? You know, in the age of social industry. Well, just
1: parenthetically, on that last point about Clinton. Uh, they are still saying in their reports, um, uh, official U.S. government reports, they're describing as trolling and disinformation accurate <laughs> discussions and statements about what Hillary Clinton said and did. One of them being, you know, her stuff about super predators. Mm-hmm. Saying, "Well, these trolls targeted African Americans as part of their." That's a really interesting sort of bit of counter-subversion there, because it's historically the case that. Um the, you know uh, black Americans are not given real agency in their sort of racist imagination rather it 's somebody outside coming in and sort of stirring people up it 's the reds it 's the jews it 's somebody mm-hmm. you know so this is in that sort of tradition anyway sorry um to to um sort of deal with your question of whether it 's easier or harder to do politics though i think it 's um it 's changing the nature of politics certainly but um The celerity of it is not so much what troubles me, um, although that does, you know, there is something about that compulsion to react and to Mm. react now. Mm. Um, There are various compulsions. One is, you know, you scroll through your Twitter timeline, you're going to see two or three or four things that just drive you nuts like that leave you feeling really depressed and angry and distressed about where the world's going and you know why is your friend who you respect said this dumb thing and you know what are you going to do about it? and the the catharsis is to write you know a subtweet or something mm-hmm. like that you know um so that's one thing um uh the other thing is um that if you don't respond you see celebrities do this a lot actually there there might be a disaster or something and if you don't say anything you get You'll get crap for it.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> say
1: yeah. um, so um, you'll get you, you'll get a tax for it, you know. Um, and so you have to say something, and that's a lot of the time people feel under pressure just to say something. Mm. So this is going to create a politics of reactivity um, and of sort of latching on to. And we were already seeing this, of course. And this kind of trivialization wasn't invented by the social industry; it was already there. I, you know, it was well under the underway, but. Um, it's just been magnified and potentiated. Um, But you can see uh, politics becoming more like a kind of Jess Phillips model of um, sort of um, I'm going to fill Westminster with Ikea um, and you know, uh, and and, uh, sort of like celebrity stuff, virtue signalling and and attacking people for um, you know, minute linguistic Mm offences or or whatever, you know Um, and this is This is going to um, result, I mean, I think the people who benefit most from that are not actually center-right labor celebs. I think they are reactionaries. Mm. I think it's sort of tendentially fascistic. So let me just say something about this. We have a a discourse now about mental health in this country, thanks to Corbyn uh, in part, and thanks to mental health campaigners, um, and a sort of general turn on the left to recognizing this is a serious issue. And obviously you can 't talk about the social industry without talking about how it interacts with mental health. You certainly can 't understand the effects of the social industry on young men, red pilling and so on if you couldn 't understand the red pill as a powerful antidepressant right um, and it 's so telling that so many of these people um, who become murderers start off as just really bitterly depressed self harming you know uh, uh, young men. Uh, or in some cases, like Darren mm-hmm. Osborne, older men who are yeah. depressed, alcoholic, yeah. on the brink of suicide, um, seeking psychiatric help and not finding it. So the network offers itself as a sort of a psychopharmacology. It offers itself as a solution to our mental health problems. Now, I think the problem with our discourse thus far has been that it lacks – It, it, it it's, it's too politically correct. It lacks militancy. Mm -hmm. Because when I think about dysphoria in this country, I think about class dysphoria and also, you know, we, we, there is a, a medicalized term of gender dysphoria, but I think there is gender dysphoria in a political sense mm-hmm. and race dysphoria. If you think about all the uh, reasons that people have to be depressed in this life, all the petty humiliations, and humiliations a big part of class experience. The internalized defeat, um, you know, the, just the depression and sense of worthlessness. And you think about how that can be activated at a moment, you know. Mm -hmm. Suppose you've had, you know, racism bombarded at you all your life, and then you see somebody, somebody who might not be the source of all racism, but they say something racist on the internet, well, isn't the temptation then, like, to join in, to mm-hmm. to get involved in the pylon, even if the pylon isn't very productive, even if it doesn't teach them anything, even if the result is actually to create a kind of weird sort of cult- ossified cultural binary, you know, where, uh, like, a lot of people who should be on your side are pushed away and all of that stuff, and you know we we need to think about the politicized nature of this dysphoria this mental illness that we're all suffering from mm-hmm. in one way or another and um, we need to think about uh, how uh, a new, probably the most profitable capitalist industry in the world right now has uh, been launched that um, nominally offers us opportunities for communication, but is actually uh, commodifying and monetizing our mental distress. Mm -hmm. We would not have turned to the network um, in the ways that we did if, according to all research, we were not now more depressed than we have been for a long, long time. Um, so, we need a politics of mental distress that is militant, mm-hmm, that is rooted mm-hmm. in legitimate anger. I mean, the, not to in any way dispute what you said earlier about the legitimacy of p- sort of domesticating the Furies. It's actually precisely because of that that we need a productive left wing mm-hmm. politics of the Furies, as it were. Yeah. And if, you know, you see what could happen if the Corbyn Project fell apart, right? Those energies are not far mm. below the surface, mm. so this is what it means to have a, a, a sort of militant politics of this we've got to take these energies and turn them into something creative and productive Have uh, we got to finish up here no we've got five We're minutes at, all right four really
0: um, but yeah no I mean what, what, what I, what, you know I, I agree entirely and I think you know that, that, you know some of the most powerful parts of the book are these accounts of you know the, the, what what the drive is that results from humiliation and shame and feeling kind of diminished and the way in which that, that motivates, yeah. um, you know, especially on, on the right. Um, and I do think there's a powerful account of sort of fascist pharmacopeia, as it were, this kind of, you know, the, 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 the red pilling. Um, and so the question, I suppose, in, in that sense is about whether there are positive iterations of this kind of, or possible positive iterations of this technopolitical regime, or whether, uh, you know, one, one, one should simply delete one's account. <laughs> I mean that <coughs> they seem to me to be the, the kind of you know, the, the, the clearest possible distinctions I suppose what I want to say is that you know this technology it's not like the old model of stories untold being discovered by new access to writing right I mean there's some of that that goes on with, yes, with this stuff there is. but you know like the, that that old um uh, proverb about uh, you know until the lion learns to write the story will always glorify the hunter right there's some of that stuff that goes on with the, the access to stuff but 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 you know is there a post uh, you know a possible positive use uh, of this technology or should we uh, be thinking about uh, exodus uh, or
1: deleting our accounts um, I mean uh- temperamentally I'm always in favor of deleting but (laughs) we can't look we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube we're not going to abolish this industry but we have to recognize that it's not a finished object right I have written about a snapshot of a an industry in motion that will evolve and all the signs are that it's going to evolve in a pretty sinister direction in which will require much more data and much more work on our part Um, unwaged labor essentially so, it's, uh, if you take the um, augmented reality, to make that work and to make it a pleasurable and useful experience, they will need us to give the, more information about... Where we are what are the different movements of our various body parts and so on and more about more about our actual behavior? Um, uh, smart cities obviously as mm. an increasingly um, Important global development we've seen in China how that can be, sort of articulate itself as a very morally uh, authoritarian uh, format, but it can take a morally neutral format and still be quite controlling mm. as mm. in the um, Google's plan smart city in Toronto, so um, I am not in favor of simply um, uh, Trying to delete it because it's impossible, but um, In in the long run we need to work out collective solutions There are tech people who I know who are more solutions oriented than I am (laughs) But what I would say in the short term just think about uh, the amount of your life that you're giving away to this Um, the average uh, global user spends 135 minutes a day on one of these apps and uh, and over an average global lifetime that's 50,000 hours out of your 71 years think about the projects that you could pursue with that think about the the dreams that you could pursue Mm -hmm. in other words take an executive overview of your life and maybe um, when you feel that urge, recognize what's driving you there. What are you trying Mm, to get away mm. from? Um, and what else could you be doing with that time? That's the
0: utopian question. What else could we be doing if not this? Right, excellent. So a return from compulsive writing, perhaps to genuinely free expression, which is also the freedom to choose not to express. Mm -hmm. Richard Seymour, thank you for joining me today. The Twittering machine is out now from Indigo Press. I've been James Butler. This has been Navarro FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'll be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye.